0: Uh, good morning. If any of you guys have uh, a child who is in a school, or um, maybe you work at a school, maybe you are in school yourself, um, maybe as a byproduct, we all are actually sitting in a school right now, so you can, you can feel related to, uh, to what's going on, but there are a couple times a year that um, things seem to get a little bit more, uh, I don't know, strained. On our, our normal schedules, um, and we're we're entering that season that we get to the end of a school year. Uh, with that comes uh, a whole litany of things. We have advanced placement exams, standardized testing. You've got finals and final projects. You've got research papers. You've got thrown in the mix class parties. You've got your normal sporting events. You've got the graduations that happen. You've got award days and field days and field trips and you know whatever else you can kind of throw in there uh, right at the end. And so teachers and kids are are often looking forward to summer, and parents are anxious about what they're going to do with their kids over the summer. Um, combination with that is springtime so things are starting to grow and yards need tackling and you've got all of these things that go on and everything seems to be in life in hyperdrive and so what i've noticed though is as in that in that mix of all the things going on is that you know people get a little cranky um And one trait that is common and characteristic to most humans is our desire, or maybe our our, uh, propensity, to grumble and complain. You know, we complain about our busy schedules and our lack of sleep and and difficult days. And as the old adage goes, you know, misery loves company. And so in every boardroom, in every classroom, every employee break room, um, every grocery line, you know, somebody starts complaining about something and then chimes in the one-uppers. You know the one-uppers are the person who uh, hears somebody's complaint and then adds to it why their complaint is much worse than somebody else. Right? We're all guilty of it at one time. I remember when I was on a flight uh, and, and we were headed towards Detroit, the pilot got on the uh, intercom and you know just gave the normal basics about what was going on, the conditions on the ground, and he said, it's, it's cold morning in Detroit, it's 20 degrees and you know, light winds and all that, and, and I think I said something like, wow, that's cold. Where somebody chimed in and said, you think that's cold? Well, I'm headed to North Dakota, where it's 10 degrees, and then another guy chimes in and he says, well, I'm headed to Saskatchewan, where it's negative 15 below, and then everyone was silent, and I guess he won that conversation. <laughs> I was thankful, though, that I was headed to the south and and going to bypass all of that. The more we complain, the more that the complaints increase, Uh, but that's not really how God wants us to be, and he doesn't want us to act that way. He wants us to be patient and kind, to be loving and forgiving and and thankful, and he doesn't want us to be full of bitterness and, and the complaints that come, but he wants us to be joyful people, and this morning, I wanted to get our minds off the things that like, cause us to complain and, and think about some of the things that you know, can uh, bring us joy. Um, for most of us, you know, we know what happiness is, you know, things make you happy, uh, but sometimes joy seems a little bit you know, more vague. Uh, I found this quote as I was kind of like, preparing for this message. J.D. Salinger, who wrote Catcher in the Rye, once said, The fact is always obvious, much too late, but the most singular difference between happiness and joy is that happiness is a solid, and a joy a liquid. I honestly have no idea what that means. Um, so instead of listening to J.D. Salinger, I figure we would go to the Word of God. And we're going to go through Philippians um, and see what are some things that Paul instructs uh, those that are in Philippi about what it means either to rejoice in something or to have joy. And so the theme of Philippians is joy. And one reason is, is that the, the, the term joy, or the word rejoice, uh, is seen in four, 14 times in this small letter. It's only four chapters, 104 verses, but you know as far as joy density, it's probably one of the greatest in all of Scripture. And it permeates this letter. And it permeates this letter... Kind of, you know, in an ironic way, when we look at what the situation is that Paul is, is writing in. We'll look at that in a second. Now, for some of us, like, joy is just pervasive. You just We're just joyous people. Um, others, it may be buried down deep. Uh, the problem, though, when that joy is kind of buried down deep and doesn't bubble up to the surface, right, it seems like, you know, either to others and maybe even to ourselves, if it's buried, it's kind of lost, that we're just not enjoying What God has given us. You know, we may be full of knowledge, know what God wants for our lives and know the particulars about our faith, but God wants us to be joyous people. Um, In his book, Gospel Wakefulness, Jared Wilson he writes A joyous Calvinist knows the mechanics of salvation, probably. But he is like a guy who knows the ins and outs of a car engine and how the car runs. He can take it apart and put it back together. He knows what each part does and how it does it. A graceless Calvinist is like a guy who knows how a car works, but he has never driven through the countryside in the warm spring air with the top down and the wind blowing through his hair. And I think it kind of strikes me as as the idea is that sometimes we go through lives knowing what God wants to us, but plodding through and sometimes not feeling, though, the joy that God has set before us. You know, God wants us to enjoy this life. He wants us to enjoy this world that he has given us and to embrace the faith that he's given us. And so no matter where you are dialed in on your joy meter, uh, hopefully we can just pick it up a notch today, and we're going to look at uh, Paul's joy statements in the book of Philippians. So he's got, we're going to look at seven situations that produce joy in Paul's letter to the Philippians. And so we'll see what Paul says, uh, the context of which he says it, and then we'll take a couple nuggets of wisdom out and see how we can maybe blossom as joyful people. So we've got a lot to go through, so buckle up and let's get ready. Um, the first joy statement that Paul makes is right away in verse 3, and he says that joy is produced when those who love, those who we love are committed to the Lord. So joy is produced when those we love are committed to the Lord. Paul says in verse 3, he says, I thank God, my God in all my remembrance of you Always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now Paul says that he is thankful for the Philippians when he thinks about them and when he prays for them. And Paul couldn't say that about every church that he thought about. Some churches had deep struggles that burdened him and burdened his heart when they came to his mind. You know, some rejected his advice, or they just took uh, his ministry to them for granted. But not the Philippians. When Paul prayed for them, which he did really for all of his churches, but when he prayed for them specifically, he was thankful. Now, there are often people in our lives that, bring us sorrow, right? There's, there's people that we think about often that cause us frustration. When we get home from our day and we talk to our spouse or talk to our roommate or our friends, you know, what are the things that we talk about? It's often the negative people, the negative situations that kind of rise to the surface. And really, they're probably the things that occupy too much of our time and rob us of joy. And I'm guilty of that. But Paul says that when he gets to praying for the Philippians, that his prayers, they're full of joy. When he starts thinking about them, something is different about them. Why? It's not because that the Philippian church was perfect. They weren't. And it's not because that they were able to change Paul's situation because they couldn't. But it's because he says in verse 5, I pray and I have joy for you all because of your partnership with, In the gospel. Now it brings joy to Paul when he's on his knees in prayer because he thinks of them and he thinks of them in a way that they are committed to preaching and sharing about Christ. Now that seems maybe a little odd because over the years, Paul had his fair share of deserters in the faith. And when he writes his very last letter in 2 Timothy, likely on, you know, knowing that he is not going to escape from jail, he writes words that are a little bit more serious, a little more toned. And he writes in in 2 Timothy two statements. He says, one, you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Philegus and Hermogenes. And so he names a couple people. And then towards the end of his letter, he says, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. And so these situations, if you read 2 Timothy, you can see kind of the burden on his heart and that these situations rob us and j- diminish our joy. But from the day that Paul went to Philippi, and that wasn't, you know, a rosy situation because he was thrown in jail and, uh, you, know, every, you know, other events had occurred when he was there, but... Those that had accepted the gospel in Philippi, since the day he preached the gospel to them, until he wrote this letter, which was about a span of ten years, they have not strayed from the gospel. And that brings joy to Paul. And I imagine it would bring joy to a lot of pastors. And so the older that you are, that you've been in churches, and maybe if you've been to multiple churches, you know that there are people who come and there are people who go. And sometimes people leave for good reasons, but then sometimes people leave for reasons where, you know, they, their faith was, was false or there was uh, problems that, that they couldn't uh, overcome within the church. And so some of the times that people leave and, Unfortunately, it's those people that often leave or that go are the ones who are thought about more than the ones who stay, right? Because we often focus our attention on the wrong things, the things that kind of weigh us down and and burden our heart, right? But it's the people that are consistent. It's the people that are faithful that often get neglected, Right? It's we don't sell our spouses enough how much you know they do for us or mean to us because our spouses, frankly, are there all the time with us, right? You don't think like the the employee who is just doing his job consistently day to day, probably enough because he's doing his job day to day. And so those are the people that often get overlooked and and taken for granted. But if we stopped and kind of took an inventory sometimes and just said, like, Lord, Man, I am so thankful for all the people that you've placed in my life, the people who over the years have just been there for me, like Paul did, those things then will start to make us like see like God has continually surrounded us with people, even though we're like, it's like we're just another fish in the school, (laughs) like all going together, but they have surrounded you by people that are there for you day in and day out, especially... Not only the people that are just there to you in a loyalty sense, but those that are committed to Christ, to sharpening you, to encouraging you, to making you who you are in your faith. But sometimes, again, we just don't think about that. So I find it great that we can stop and look and say like right away that Paul says, you just bring me joy because... You're not doing all the things, that all, you're not one of the fires I'm trying to put out, but you're there consistently preaching the gospel and you are nearest and dearest to me, but you have stayed committed. So that's the first thing that brings Paul joy, that Paul says, I thank God for you, and that can really bring us joy when we think about those who are God has entrusted in our care or really that have surrounded us all through our faith journey. The second thing, Is a few verses later in verses 17 through 18. And Paul, uh, so joy is produced when Christ is proclaimed, no matter the reason why. And Paul says in verse 17, he says, The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. So he's talking about those who uh, uh, are filling in his ministry. Not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that uh, I rejoice. In verse 17, Paul indicates that he's not writing from his his study or his private library. He's not writing from another church while he's visiting. He's not writing while he's on vacation. The, The place that Paul is writing this letter is that he is in a Roman prison. And because Paul was thrown into a prison, all of the ministry opportunities that he was doing and traveling around to different churches and checking in on them and and going and planting new churches, um, that void uh, left a vacancy that others wanted to fill. And he said that, you know, some of those people that were looking to fill his absence were not doing so for noble reasons, he says that they proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition. In other words, they were those who were looking to advance themselves. And in addition to that, Paul says that it really wasn't even the sincere desire to you know, further their own careers, but that a major emphasis and a major reason was that they wanted uh, to afflict him in his imprisonment, to make Paul suffer. Ouch. Ouch man that hurts (laughs) when you read that and so I could just imagine you know being in prison and thinking about that you know you if if you had a job that you left and then somebody is doing that and not only are they doing that just for their own you know selfish reasons but they're also doing that to spite you um, I, I would think it would be hard to not like feel bitter about that but Paul's reaction is quite the opposite You know, in light of their motives, Paul says that he is able to rejoice. And why is he able to rejoice? Because he says, in the end, I know that Christ is proclaimed. He was able to, like, step back and look at the situation that he was in and just look at the big picture. I mean, what else could he do in jail? I mean, he could run a smear campaign, perhaps. But that's not what he did. He found, like, the silver lining that was in this difficult situation that he was in. But it wasn't like he gritted his teeth in that. He says, I rejoice over that. As long as the gospel advance is advanced, he's okay with not getting the recognition. He was okay even if their motivations were possibly sinful. Now, to be clear, these preachers, they're not false teachers teaching a false doctrine, or they're not, you know, what's described in other places in scripture as wolves. But they seem to be men that were motivated by the wrong things. But again, as long as Christ is preached, he knows that the Spirit can work on that person's heart and mature him. And he knows that the Spirit of God can work in other people's hearts as they hear the message that's proclaimed. Paul knew his role. right? He knew he was just a ministry worker and not someone who should be elevated. He was just one piece of the puzzle. And like any other, he was replaceable. To the church in Corinth, you know, Paul wrote these things because there was divisions happening in the church and some were elevating certain ministers in the church. Paul being one, Apollos being another, uh, Peter being a third. And this is what he says. He says, what then is Apollos or what is Paul? Meaning two just two ministry workers there, one himself being included. We're just servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field, God's building. And so that was his perspective on the ministry. And if I'm able to do it, then I will work. And if I'm not then somebody else can do it, and as long as Christ is proclaimed, you know, I will rejoice. Now, are there any implications of this, you know, is it any different today? I mean, there are those that are in ministry who are there for a whole host of wrong reasons. Probably over the years, again, if you've been in different churches or, you know, been a part of different ministries, you've seen some of those people who, you know, either faded out or maybe um, lost their, their luster, right? Some uh, get into the ministry because of you know, the attention that it brings. Um, some stay in the ministry because that's all they've ever known. I don't know if you're aware of this, but there is a support network for atheists that are in ministry. Um, it's kind of a weird thing, but there are some who feel like they can't get out of the ministry, and so there's a support network for those who haven't come out and proclaim their atheism. Um, you can read about it online if you want. Anyway, so... Um, but there are others who you know, were on fire for God when they got in the ministry, but after years of service have just lost their passion or lost their zeal. But guess what? God can still use those people to help others. I mean, all the time people are being saved in churches where the pastor, his aim is not on the people of God or not on even God himself, but sometimes on himself as he preaches. But we can still rejoice, or can we still rejoice, when the gospel is being preached? I know when we start talking about other believers and, and other churches, um, sometimes we can start to get critical because we, you know, we love what we're a part of, and there's very good reasons for that. But how often do we step back and we at least rejoice that the gospel is being preached elsewhere? You know, For many of us, we are saved in places other than this church, And for that reason, we should rejoice. Paul certainly did. And so, that moves us on to the third thing. Is that joy is produced when you see that you are never alone. So right after that, he says, yes, I will rejoice. Again, you know, that Christ is proclaimed, yes, I will rejoice. And I know these guys are out to get me. But he, he turns and he says, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ that this will turn out for my deliverance. Um, So similar to Paul rejoicing that the Philippians had remained steadfast in their faith, he's rejoicing not only are they committed in Christ, which he said at the very beginning of chapter 1, but they are committed to Paul. He knew that they were on their knees thinking about him and asking God to intervene in his situation. I mean, it's, it's wonderful to be a part of a group of people who pray for one another? Whether it's a just a small group or a Bible study or just a group of men or women that get together, um, or just a you know even a collection of friends that will pray for one another, it is something that is uh, is you know brings joy to the heart. You know, I'm, I'm humbled when every once you know, someone may stop me and say, hey, I just want you to know that I've been praying for you. And if I haven't been sick or haven't, like, offered up any prayer, I think, like, what for? Um, but the reality is, right, we need prayer on a daily basis because can we get through any day or any maybe even hour without having some sort of uh, sinful thought or, or some sort of stumbling block? And so uh, we need prayer, right? But sometimes we don't offer that up. Uh, as much as we should. And Paul knows, you know, he says that because of their prayers and because through the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that he knows that things will turn out for his deliverance. Meaning that he knows he's got this deep-seated feeling that he will get out of, of jail. He'll get out of this imprisonment. Um, and so if we are able to pray for one another... That was an encouragement to him. And so we can say that to ourselves. If we're able to do that for other people, then we can provoke or encourage joy in other people's life. And so that's really how joy is cultivated. And Paul lays out, though, in the end of Ephesians, when we talk about kind of like of struggles that we have, the end of Ephesians. He says that all the things that we face, really the difficulties in life, is not really like a, you know, flesh and blood thing of this world issue. It's most of the things that we face, most of the burdens of our heart, usually when we come home, the things that we unload are the things that are spiritual in nature, the things that really uh, wage war In our souls. And so it's at the end of Ephesians in chapter 6 that Paul then lays out the armor of God. And he goes through every piece of armor that we put on that are related to our faith, um, that is uh, something that symbolizes theological truths that are true for every believer. And the armor of God is individual for each person, that every person is supposed to take up, every Christian is supposed to take up uh, each and every day in order to wage this spiritual battle. But after he describes the, the, the armor, he concludes by telling the Ephesians this. He says, I want you to be praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. And to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So Paul reminds the Ephesians, as he would do the Philippians, that they can help him and they can help each other by encouraging one another. Because even though you will have your own spiritual armor and you have your own spiritual battle, guess what? This is something that we do not or should not be doing alone. And Paul is praising that the Philippians were already doing that for him. And in response, he rejoices because he knows that he is not only supported on earth, but he is supported in heaven as well. He may be in jail, but he is not alone. So we can do the same thing when we think about our own lives and get other people to be involved in our own lives as we pray for one another and encourage one another and realize we're not in this battle alone. Number four, joy is produced when harmony prevails. I think I put harmony happens, but prevails is probably better because harmony you have to work at. And so this begins in chapter two, verses one and two. Paul says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. So Paul lays out for them what would make his joy complete. He's like, I have joy. I have joy just thinking about you and your dedication. I have joy thinking about how you pray for me. I can rejoice at some of these trials that are going on and some of these issues, but I want you to complete my joy. There's one other piece of the puzzle that I want you to like wrap up and this will complete my joy. And so he says, in verse one, he says, if there is any encouragement, if there is any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, right? He kind of like covers like every angle, kind of setting them up, you know, for the motivation for one thing that he's going to ask. Like it's, you know, it's like if you want your child to do something for you, you're like, if you really love dad and if you appreciate all that he's done for you, right? If you want to make me happy, you know, and then you can fill in the blank. You could do this, right? You kind of like set them up. Like, if you want to do one thing for me, this is it. So what is his plea? His plea is peace. His His plea is harmony. He says that he wants them to be one mind, one love, one spirit. He wants them to be one. And that's really like in the Greek. In the ESV, it says of one mind, kind of repeated, but he just says, in the Greek, it just says, I want you to be one. Kind of like ending it emphatically like that. Now, the opposite sentiment was happening in other churches divisiveness. When I teach Bible classes, I tell my students that one of the greatest goals for the church, maybe attitudes for the church, That God has is unity. It's a theme that really, when you start looking at scripture, especially the epistles, that you see it all over the place. You see this idea to be of one mind because we are of one spirit and of one God and all of these things. But there are places all of scripture that talk about this idea. I want you to be united. I want you to have harmony amongst each other. Really, it's what any organization wants. It's what every family wants, right? And one of the things that that my wife will sometimes, like, in kind of, like, the busyness of everything, she'll just kind of pull me aside, and and she'll just be like, look. And, like, I'll be looking. It's like our kids sitting on a couch, like, re- one of them reading a story to the others or something. She's like, just look at that. And I'm like, <laughs> it's like we're, like, looking at animals. Like, look what they're doing. <laughs> um, and it's for some reason, you know, because, you know, you have normally five of us all kind of running around and doing everything. But, like, all of a sudden, they're just, like, sitting there, like, enjoying each other's company. Like, we didn't even prompt that. Like, they just did it themselves. And so she's like, doesn't that just, like, warm your heart? And sometimes she'll tell them that, hey, this makes me happy. And they're like, okay. <laughs> So do this more, is what we're saying. Um, but that's, that's kind of the idea. Like, we can just step back, right, and see them having a ball, and then it just produces joy when we're able to, like, maybe stop, because I'm glad that my wife will pull me aside, because I would have been like, oh, yeah, it's three kids on a couch reading, right? But, you know, but get the idea that they're, they're getting along together uninitiated by us. And so this, like, warms your little heart. So, Paul, likewise, Paul knows that, like, in the thick and thin of ministry, that nothing is better for a church than to be like-minded. Now, I mean, obviously, there's the other, there's the, the easy part, right? For leadership, when everyone is getting along together, then there's no fires to put out. And so it is easier to deal with. I mean, how many people would be out of a job if everyone got along in your organization? You know, HR, you know, you'd have less to do. Um, Counselors, probably be like twiddling your thumbs, right? So some jobs are actually produced because of disagreements that occur, you know, within an organization. But that's not really the primary motivation for Paul, right? The bigger issue is that divisiveness, division, can destroy churches, Right? It destroys the testimony of Christ to others. It tears us down. It creates walls among us. It sows seeds of bitterness, and it brings with it tension and uneasiness. And Paul had to address the same issue. I mentioned it earlier when he went to Corinth. And he says, For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says I follow Paul and another I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? And when Paul says like they're acting human, you know, he's kind of saying that the fact that like division is what just people do. But if you are in Christ, you know, that there is a higher standard. You you are held to a higher standard because you aren't all competing about with your own interests. When you follow Christ, what is your own your main interest is what Christ desires. And that's where Paul would launch into this chapter uh, in Philippians chapter two about the way that we do this is by being humble and how Christ humbled himself. But you guys can can read that on your own time, otherwise I'd spend the rest of our time looking, looking at that because it is so rich. And so Paul asks the Philippians to complete his joy by being like-minded. And they aren't there yet. Uh, In chapter 4, he specifically calls out two women. And he says, hey, you know, I want these two women to get along together. And he asks the church to aid them in that, right? He calls them out by their name because he doesn't want this thing to escalate into something bigger, right? Again, division kind of sucks joy out of our lives and out of a church. But harmony allows joy to flourish. And it also bears noting that, that when, when Paul is writing that, that he is writing to a local church, and the application is within a local church. But, you know, it's easy to get along when we have the same doctrine and, and you know, choose the, the church that we want to be in. But are we able to do that with brothers and sisters in Christ who may worship in a different style, right? If there is division or strife, we are to take care of it. Not forget about it or pretend that the problem does not exist. But seeking to be of one mind can actually strengthen the bond between two people. Even if we don't see exactly the same way in certain situations and preferences, if we have the same goal to be like Christ, then that can bring us together. Which leads us to our next point, number 5. Joy is produced when our minds are set at ease. And this really comes from the context of really what's being talked about in chapter 2. So in verse 28, Paul says, "I am the more eager to send him, therefore that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete" What, he was lack, or what was lacking in your service to me. The he that Paul is referring to is a man named Epaphroditus. And in verse 25, Paul says, Epaphroditus is my brother and fellow worker and fellow sir, soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. In other words, the Philippians sent Epaphroditus to Paul to check, it up, check up on him and to help minister to Paul and to give him and to aid him things. But while he was there, he got sick, and he almost died. It's likely that, Paul, that Epaphroditus is the man that's bringing this letter back and reading it to the Philippians. So Paul in verse 27, Paul says that, again, he was ill and near the point of death, and that the Philippians you know, were starting to worry about him. And so because the Philippians were worried about him, Paul says, listen, I don't want to add to your burden. I know you sent him to me to help aid me, and he did. But because of the fact that he's bringing you sorrow, and because that he is burdening you, I'm going to send him back to you. And it will not only lessen the burden to you, but it will lessen my burden as well. And so Paul does something tangible that would make them feel better. In fact, really the entire letter uh, to the Philippians is to ease their mind. I mean, mainly they're concerned about Paul being in jail, and he's like, don't worry about me. Don't worry about me. Rejoice. Just, you know, there are plenty of things to, to rejoice about, right? And there are plenty of times that we will have concern about others, just practically in our day-to-day lives, right? There's a uh, you know, and until an issue is fully resolved and settled in our minds, we won't be fully at peace, right? You know, a husband will worry when his wife goes, you know, out to run an errand late at night. Until she comes back, will he feel fully at peace? You know, same thing when, if a husband is traveling for work, you know, a wife might be uh, uneasy until he gets back. And there are things that you cope with, you know, just because of the situation. You understand that God is in control, but it doesn't lessen the fact that every once in a while you have these things like, what if something happens? Same thing with a child. Like when you give your keys to your child when they're 16, and, uh, you know, now they're given the car and they drive off to do whatever they need to do. Um, You know, there's a little bit of tension just saying, like, I hope Things are okay. And once they pull the car back into the driveway is then when you feel like, ah, they didn't wreck the car and they're safe. And so everything is, is okay. And Paul like practically, you know, points something, you know, that is tangible that he can, he can do. And so for us, the application is if there's something that's weighing on your heart, you know, maybe you need to prayerfully consider if there's anything, steps that could be made to ease our mind. Jesus talked about that when he said that if you go to make an offering to the Lord, but you have a problem with your brother, go and deal with that problem, and then you can come and worship the Lord. Because this thing that was burdening you is always going to be on your mind, and you won't be fully available to the Lord until you take care of whatever it is that it is. And so... Not only that, but Paul says, take it one step further. And he tells them, when he comes back, I want you to honor the man's service. So celebrate the things that he has done. And we can help others by reducing their burdens as well. And sometimes celebrating small victories in other people's lives can, can do that. So make others feel appreciated. For Paphroditus, he was coming home. And Paul says, welcome him back home. And so that is certainly a reason to rejoice. Number six, joy is produced when we rest in Christ's works, not our own. And this is a huge one. You know, Paul says in several letters, but in chapter three, verses one and one through three, Paul says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus And put no confidence in the flesh. And so Paul warns them about these this group that he calls the dogs, the evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh. This is sometimes called the Judaizers. And essentially, when you know Gentiles who were in in Philippi were converted, there was a group of Jewish uh, the group of Jews that said, Okay, well, if you want to truly follow God. You know, now you need to be circumcised or now you need to obey the dietary customs uh, that are found in the Old Testament, they would say of of God's law. And so they were saying you need to do these things in order to be truly saved. If you read Acts chapter 15, that's actually happened when Paul went on his first missionary journey and he came back and he was finding out that when he went to Antioch, his home church, that that same issue was brought up. And so Paul goes down to Jerusalem and says like, what do you guys think? I've been preaching that we don't need to do anything in order to, um, to truly be, show that we are a follower of Christ. We don't need, you know, men don't need to be circumcised, but what do you think? And so James and the rest of the apostles kind of came together and said, no, the Gentiles don't need to add any burdens to their life. It's through faith alone that you are saved. And so Paul says, oh, there's this group that's coming and boasting about these things. He says, we don't place confidence in our flesh. And he says, let me, let me tell you, you know, give you a reason why. And so he lays out um, some of the things that uh, he put his own, that he could have put his own confidence in, um, in the next several verses. Paul says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. So meaning that he had parents who were committed to him being raised in a religious upbringing. He says, I was of the people of Israel. So Paul saying, I was born into the right religion. He says, I was born of the tribe of Benjamin, which means that he was not only born to Israel, but he was born to one of the only two tribes that remained faithful when they broke from Israel, when Judah and and Benjamin broke off um, after the split of Israel, Uh, after Solomon. Um, So not only was that, so he had had a, a, a good pedigree, if you will. He says, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews, and unto the law a Pharisee, meaning that he knew the law and he could tell you about what the law was. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, meaning that he was passionate about his faith. And then he says, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless meaning morally upright, he was a rule follower. Now, all of these things are things that we could boast in. You know, who our family was uh, or is, uh, who, you know, what, where we were born, um, you know, what status we have in society. And he says all of these things which were important to Jews, he says, I count them as loss for the sake of Christ. You know, Paul knew that he could go to any restaurant and be seated, you know, given a table. It didn't really work that way. But he knew that with his things that he could boast on, that he would be given elevation or status. Probably he could go to any synagogue and preach if he wanted to. And he did when he went on his missionary journeys because of these things that, you know, who he was and the things, you know, how he was born and the things that he had accomplished. But he says none of that matter. None of that matter. You know, and we all boast in our accolades. Like, we're, we're proud of our family. We're proud of our church. We're proud of our work or our schooling. You know, we're proud of our football teams. Like, whatever it is. And, and as Americans, we're often boastful people. But boasting does not bring true joy, right? It only brings competition. It only brings one upmanship. shit. It brings division. A championship team is only good for the years that it wins. Sooner or later, you're going to lose. And that happiness is fleeting. But joy is not resting on our own accomplishments, which are fleeting, but on the accomplishments of Christ. Those are lasting. Those are eternal. And those are the only thing that matter in the end. All right, last point. Joy is produced when we are content in the Lord's provisions. When we are content in the Lord's provisions. Paul says in chapter four, verses five through six, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Right? Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. And if that wasn't emphatic enough, he says, again, I say rejoice. I mean, as a... As Redundant as that is, it needs to be said. You know, how often do we rejoice always? I think we've already laid out the case that that's not always the fact, right? Um, It's too easy for us to gravitate towards the things that aggravate us or come in conflict with our little kingdoms that we rule over. And if it's a problem that we can't fix, sometimes we fixate on it. Which is why Paul then says, you know, let your gentleness and graciousness, um, so that word reasonableness can be translated as gentleness or graciousness, um, something that is, uh, is kind of inviting or something that is, um, you know, drawing others to you. And he says, let that be known to everyone, not what you stand for, but who you are. And we might pause and think about, you know, how often we get into the fray of these negative conversations? Or are we the one that people look to us for our reasonableness or gentleness or graciousness in these things? Or maybe it's that we just don't even engage at all. But say, he says then, not only let these people know about who you are, kind of that inner self, he says, know that the Lord is at hand. And he says that for a couple reasons. One, the Lord is at hand. The Lord, one, knows your heart and knows, you know, is there, kind of watching you. But he says more so that the Lord is at hand because he is there for you as an ever-present help whenever that you are uh, in need. We get anxious because we are unsure about certain things. But he says, trust in the Lord, go to him with prayer and supplication whenever you are anxious, and he will help you. If you drop down a few verses later, in verse 10, Paul then goes on to say that he rejoiced over the Philippians' concern. And he gives them a secret about how he's able to get through these things and still rejoice. He says in verse 11, I have learned in whatever situation... I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, and I can do all things through him who strengthened me. Yet it was kind for you to share my trouble. And sometimes I read this and I, I stop and think, you know, like, what's wrong with me sometimes, right? It's so easy for us to talk about all the things that go wrong in life, and so easy for us to like want more. Like we're in a culture that, that um, is saturated with aim higher, do better, achieve more, you deserve it. And we often buy into it. Instead of looking at where we are lacking, as fathers of Jesus, we need to focus on the great abundance of the things that we have been given. And know that if we feel like we're ever lacking somewhere, it is Christ who makes up any deficiency that we think that we may have. Joy can be produced when we are truly content with what God has given us, which is eternal life and salvation that is secure in heaven. I think it's kind of funny that in verse 14, that he says, yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. I mean, you know, he's writing from jail and he has needs that they sent somebody up for. Um, he's, you know, things that are going on in the ministry. But he's like, listen, like, if there's any deficiency that I have, I know that I'm content in whatever situation because I know there'll be times that I have a lot and there'll be times that I have little. And there'll be times that I'll feel in danger and there'll be times that I'll feel safe. But in any of those situations, I know that Christ will get me through whatever it is. And so we kind of stop and then summarize these things. And so has anyone ever asked you, you come up to you and say, like, are you happy in life right now? Every once in a while I'll have somebody ask me, like, are you happy? And really it seems like it's kind of a a day-to-day thing. Like, I don't know, you know. (laughs) If you get me early in the morning, I'm pretty happy. You know, as the day wears on, maybe not so much. It depends really, like, on our circumstances and the things that are going on. Whenever that question is asked... Well, when the question is asked, like, do you have joy? Like, that's something that's a little bit different, right? Because joy ends up being a a state of mind that is produced by who you are in Christ. And while our joy can increase and decrease, it's something that we are able to cultivate because of who we are in Christ and what we do to choose to grow it, (laughs) If you're struggling in life right now to find joy, it might be because you have never come in contact with the one who gives true joy. Jesus said, I have come to give life and to give it abundantly. And so maybe that's the thing that you're missing, is the fact that you're relying too much on yourself, and the fact that you haven't yielded to God. And so that's something that we all need to pause and think about. If we are struggling to find joy, it could be that we're filling our life up with things that actually take joy away from us. St. Thomas Aquinas once said, No man can live without joy. That is why one deprived of spiritual joy goes over to carnal pleasures. So as we wrap up, I just want to give you a couple practical things. We stop and think about some of the things that Paul listed that produce joy. You know, when he says, when others, you know, uh, that joy is produced when those we love are committed to the Lord. You know, one good way is, again, just to think about all the people that uh, have stayed committed in your life. And good things are, are always when you see people that are giving their life to the Lord. So go to a baptism service. If you ever have that opportunity, I don't know how, like, I'm always, like, filled with, like, happy, joyous thoughts. Because I'm like, look at all these people who give their testimony about, like, being, you know, very self-focused to giving their life over to Christ, and then it just kind of stops and reminds us, God did the same thing for us, and it just produces joy in our hearts. Joy is produced when Christ is proclaimed, no matter what the reason was, when a friend tells you about you know, their church service, and if it's, different, if it's a different church service, you know, ask them about how Christ is proclaimed in that service, and then rejoice over that. Find that, that commonality, because Paul was able to do that. When you see that you are never alone, joy is produced, right? Pause and remember that others are looking out for you. Don't think that whatever it is, you're going out it, about it alone. And don't be afraid to share your requests, prayer requests, with others because people would love to pray for you, even if you think it's small you know, and insignificant. It's the things that, that you know, we need to be in each other's lives about. Uh, joy is produced when harmony prevails, so seek unity with others in Christ, not divisions. Always be mindful of the fact that when we like, say things that divide us up, again, it's something that's not healthy. What are the things that can unite us and bring us together? Joy is produced when our minds are set at ease. There are practical things that we can do to reduce our burdens, and maybe it's just being less committed. Joy is produced when we rest in Christ's work and not our own. Do not try to please God. Obedience is not a necessary action, but an appropriate response. Meaning, there is nothing that you could do if you are in Christ that will make God love you any more. We obey because we know that God loves us, and it's an appropriate response of that relationship. And number seven, when we are content in the Lord's provisions, joy is produced. Don't sink more than what God wants to give you in the timing that he has for you. Christian philosopher Peter Kreeft writes, No one who ever said to God, Thy will be done, and meant it with his heart, ever failed to find joy. Not just in heaven or even down the road in the future in this world, but in this world, at that very moment, here and now. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful uh, that... Even though sometimes, you know, when Paul had wrestled in his heart, you know, that he, oh, sinful man that I am, a wretched man that I am, why do I, why do I keep doing the things that I don't want to do? There are times in our life that we, are, 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 we grumble and complain or are not thankful enough. But Lord, help us to be people of joy. Lord, the people that you desire for us to be. And so I pray for anyone who has any burdens on their hearts, Lord. Uh, help us to wrestle through these things. Help us to see, Lord, that uh, you want us to live life and, and have life abundantly through Christ Jesus. And so I pray again, if there's anything today uh, that struck um, anybody through your spirit, Lord, I just pray that we will kind of mull over that and meditate on that. And again, just give you praise because it is joy we want that, that you bring to us. And when we focus solely and our hearts are solely set on you, then that produces joy as well. So let us be a people of joy and be able to praise you each and every day as much as you allow us. In Jesus' name, amen.